He needs extreme cold to survive. His cryo suit uses diamond-enhanced lasers to keep him at precisely zero degrees. Let me get this straight. A brilliant citizen, disfigured by a horrible accident, reemerges as a psychotic supervillain bent on theft, revenge, and destruction. You see a pattern here? Yeah, but what you gonna do? That's not in the book. <laughs> Solve crimes! That's what you're gonna do. <laughs> Authorized Crumbs, a podcast where we string you along with bits of hope until eventually we deliver a new season of Authorized. You're welcome. Like a brilliant... Pretty soon. <laughs> what? Really soon. Oh, good. Thank God. They've been fighting for it, I'm sure. Like a brilliant Olympian turned scientist turned supervillain, you may feel like you can solve what haunts you, the lack of a new season. But discover that hope has actually made you into a foe more wretched than you can bear. A fan of our wonderful podcast. On your horrible journey through our crumbs, as you fall deeper and deeper into despair, we can only hope that you uncover a diamond or two. Also, there's only one crumb between seasons this time, so just like chill out, calm down. It's fine. You're welcome. <laughs> it's a trick. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Hannah Blackman. And I'm Andrew Overby. Little pause before the last name so that they'll go, which Andrew is it? Batman and Robin is a 1997 superhero film directed by Joel Schumacher. It follows Batman and Robin, a new and still tender crime-fighting team who find themselves very preoccupied with new villains Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy. As their bond is repeatedly tested, and as their father figure, Alfred's health declines, our masked protagonists must consider that their foes, defined by their devotion to their true loves, Freeze with his wife, and Ivy with her love for the Earth, may have something both men can learn from to become, in spirit, the united front they claim to be. This novelization of Batman and Robin was written by Alan Grant, based on the screenplay by Akiva Goldsman. It was published by DC Comics in 1997. And I have to get our guest in here as quickly <laughs> as possible because what is going on with there being two novelizations? They were both published in America. I'm so confused. Anyway, our guest today, returning from our Batman and Robin episode, we've really pigeonholed him. <laughs> From the podcasts, I read movies, Hellbent for Letterboxd, Cult Film Club, and Crestwood House, Paxton Holly, how are you doing today? Hi, Anna. Hi, Andrew. Uh, I am so happy you guys had me back on until you told me what the book was, and I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, So yeah, I'm glad to be pigeonholed as uh, Batman and Robin only, so... Well, we, the, you, theoretically, you would never be welcomed back on if we made that our policy. This is true. Because I, I think we've exhausted them. <laughs> I well, think I we extended to only Chris O'Donnell movies. Yeah, only Chris O'Donnell movies. I would not argue with doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paxton, yeah. the, this is something that 
we're starting to do. We we've recorded one episode. It's coming out literally next week. That is another episode on ET. Even though we did the the junior novelization by Terry Collins, we're now doing the Cotswinkle. Yep. And this is something we're starting to explore. What is it like when one film property gets novelized twice or more? Uh, yeah. And as I was saying, I was very confused because I assumed. There'd be some key difference here. This was released in a different country, or this was intentionally marketed as a junior novelization. It appears to just be another American novelization. What do you think? Yeah, and it is. this happens, and it's super confusing when it does happen. And uh, technically, I think it is supposed to be the junior novelization, but they do not advertise it as such thereby even further confusing the whole issue. So, uh, but it happens. And sometimes, you know, I've come up on another one that was very recently, I've been looking at uh, Mask of Zorro, the Antonio Banderas one. They have a similar one where James Lucino wrote the regular one. And I can't remember who wrote the other one. And they, they don't advertise it as junior. And I, I thought I had one. And then I was like, wait, wait, what's this other one? I've, I've never heard of this. Other one. So it is super confusing, even for me. We have an upcoming episode where we're doing a novelization that's like, you know, 400 pages long. I don't want to spoil it for the listener. And then one of our hosts who's not on the episode thus far comes in to talk about a Lucino, a James Lucino novelization that's the same movie but like 300 pages. And the, the question there haunts me here, which is, if these things are junior, why not junior them more? Why are they most of the length of the other one? That's a great question. Uh, and the only reason I call it junior is because they really, it's really helicopter view. I mean, they really just kind of don't get into a lot of detail. And it feels like it, the book just kind of flies through the events of the novels. Definitely. I mean, with this one, I absolutely feel that way. Yeah. This feels strongly like a junior novelization to me. The font is big. <laughs> <laughs> the spacing so is wide. So <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like a third grade book report, man. There's like yeah, yeah. huge margins. Exactly. Andrew, you were Hannah, about to put me on blast. <laughs> yeah. Can we talk about, Hannah, what parts of your biography as given by you are true what, and what parts are fraudulent? So um, at some point, I mean, when we were starting this podcast, I was like, oh, I love movie novelizations. I read a bunch as a kid. The most meaningful ones to me as a child that I read over and over were Batman and Robin and Spider-Man 3. Um, and I was like, I love the novelization of Batman and Robin. It's so good. It really was important to me. And I have deep memories of um, getting to the picture section and it had a break in the middle of a sentence. And I remembered it being also in the middle of a word, like there was a hyphen. <laughs> So we read the longer version, and I was like, this isn't it. I don't think this is the one that I read. This doesn't feel right. And Andrew was like, interesting, interesting. And then he found this shorter one. It was like, this has got to be it. This is a kid's one. This movie came out when you were like eight. Certainly that's the one you read. And I acknowledge I did not finish reading it, but it didn't feel right. I don't think this is it either. <laughs> I... I when I got the novelization six months ago or so, I sent you a photo right away. Yes. To show that indeed the photos do interrupt a sentence. <laughs> yes. 
I was like, we've done it. We found this key, <laughs> this key object from your history. The other and now key, you're renouncing it. I know, Well, here's the deal. The other key memory I have of that novelization is that one of the pictures in the middle was of Chris O'Donnell's rubber lips, which, as we've discussed, was a very formative moment for me. <laughs> and that picture is not present in this little book. Hmm. Uh, maybe so, there's I another, don't know. Maybe there's another like 95 page novelization out there that we got to find. <laughs> no, <laughs> maybe. I mean, it, it really, it was so long ago. I no longer owned that edition, whatever it was. It was, you know, 20 some years ago. And we may never know. But this didn't feel to me like the book that so captured my heart as a young person. I do know. So you showed the one I read too. But I knew that there were two. And I knew, I didn't know Alan Grant wrote, th wrote this one. But uh, the other one, the cover is different of the one I remember and my original one I read because um, I read both of them back when the movie first came out. And uh, so the other one was more of just the bat symbol. It didn't have a picture of Batman and Robin on it. So maybe there is another edition with different pictures in it. I bet that's it. I there bet that's it. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is going to be the the story of Authorizes. We're just searching for the Batman and Robin. I'm going to end up with like nine different versions of this story. And every time I'll be like, mm, I don't know. Not, it's not the, you know, Goldilocks perfect Batman and Robin. <laughs> is it possible that Hannah Blackman just grew and changed? No. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. What, are you trying to say that when we read the novelization of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 3, you think I won't think it's great? You think that won't be the it's book of my life again? It is going to be great when you read it. <laughs> uh, just to go on a total tangent, uh, Pax, you, you recently covered Spider-Man 1, is that correct? I did the first one, yes. And what's what's the verdict on that one? How, do, how we feel about that guy? Amazing. It was really good. And I, I had read him... I'd read those three back then as well. So this was my first reread since then. And it was better than I remembered it being. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to two and especially three because three, I think, was very different. I remember is, it being having like some details that I was like, wow, that's different and so interesting. Yeah. You yeah. know, at that point, I was like 15. So that's a real adult brain thought. <laughs> that it is. That's not a baby brain <laughs> yeah, thought. That's a big brain right there. Yeah. <laughs> Spider-Man 1, is that a... Yeah, all three of them were. Wow. Okay. And Andrew Marco, do bleep that name in case he's got AI or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Hannah, I feel like you've never brought up this Spider-Man 3 love. Oh, and no, I haven't. We'll okay. Just do it in season four. That sounds amazing. I can't wait. <laughs> it really, I liked that one a lot. <laughs> I rewatched it recently in isolation. I like didn't watch Spider-Man 1 or Spider-Man 2. And I was just like, it's not that bad. No. I mean, the, the amnesia stuff really pissed me off. But that was super other boring. than that, it, it's, it just reeks of cowardice. It reeks of like, <laughs> how do I not make this movie 20 minutes long? Right. <laughs> amnesia for 30 seconds in the movie. It was, yeah. I watched it with my kids and I was like, it's not as bad as I remember. It's still not great. But my kids are obsessed with uh, Tobey Maguire. Bully Maguire is what they call him. And uh, they love that whole dancing thing. So. Wow. Yeah. Target yeah. audience hit. <laughs> Nailed. That's awesome. Okay, so Hannah, yeah. the only reason we're doing this is because you claimed it was a book you loved. D having pushed us into this experience, <laughs> I actually fi find some, some merit in this book. I'm, I'm not 
I'm not here to do a hit piece or anything. <laughs> Having pushed us into this, though, what's what's your feeling on the writing in, in Batman and Robin by... Uh, what what's Alan Grant's uh, profession? Some sort of dian- dinosaurologist. <laughs> he is. He is a dinosaurologist. He is a comic writer. Yes. Yeah. I didn't do a bio on this guy, but that was his whole Wikipedia page. Was just like pretty much he, he he's pretty much all comics, and he dipped into novelizations of those properties. Yeah. Cool. That's cool for him. Look again. I due to personal stuff. Didn't finish reading it. <laughs> Not a knock on the writing, which I found fleet of foot and perfectly adequate. Um, You know, like Paxton was saying, it's sort of helicopter view. It's light. It's up top. It's not getting into emotions very much. But, you know, fine. Perfectly good. I would hand this to an eight-year-old me. And I think eight-year-old me would be like, I don't know. What if there was one that was more about feelings? (laughs) And had a picture of Chris O'Donnell with wax lips. Yeah, baby. <laughs> what about you, Paxton? How? You, what's the initial impression of this thing? Yeah, I did finish it, and um, yeah, it's super, super breezy, like super breezy, um, pun, pun intended. And uh, but I did, I too found merit in it because it, it did do a couple of things that the big novelization, the adult novelization, did not do. Uh, that. I was very interested in that. Uh, it was just like one drop line here, one drop line there that kind of added one little detail that I didn't get from the original novelization. I thought was just kind of interesting uh, to bring up on a couple of different things. I felt like even though it was totally, uh, it, what's the word I'm looking for? It was a little like impressionistic where th- this book at times felt like there's a Batman, there's an Iceman, right. punch, punch, punch. And you're like, I, I'm seeing a story between the words, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I thought that in places it really mimicked the feeling of reading a comic book because there were times when Grant, let me try to find one, he has these uh, breaks in the middle of his chapters, which is a completely normal thing to do when writing chapters, yeah. when you're doing like a scene change, where he puts the little Batman logo as the as the transition and when he does two in a row therefore like isolating a passage in the middle it usually reads like a panel of a comic book so here's one as the numbers rolled grimly on to fifteen thousand, this is the altitude robin was struggling to climb up onto the capsule's nose cone he had clamped twin potent bat-shaped magnets to the pod's steel side and he made his way hand over hand fighting against the fierce acceleration. You can just see that as a single window, a single rectangle, right? Yeah. Where he's climbing on the outside, you see the 15,000. Yep. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way it was written was definitely evoked comics, if if only for the super simple way it was written, but also because of Alan Grant the way he is, he can definitely build that picture uh, like he's writing a comic book. Definitely. Definitely. I feel like this is attempted a lot in the opposite way where somebody takes a comic book and they try to put it on screen and they're like, can I create a frame of film that mimics a frame of a comic book? It's interesting to see that happen, but in reverse where it's like it's being stripped of senses. Yeah. Can I create, can I create the panel just through words? Yeah. Yeah. Especially considering how visual this movie is and then kind of reading this super breezy version of it. Uh, he does a good job evoking that visual 
just that visual appeal of the movie itself. And if this isn't clear to the listeners, if you're if you're discovering us recently or or what have you, you should definitely check out the episode on the full novelization that we did with Paxton, which I think was January of 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of that one, I mean, Hannah, you're you're saying this doesn't feel like the one you read as a kid. Also, the last one didn't. Uh, you know, and and it, it's like when someone has two dissatisfying experiences, you have to ask. What what do those things have in common? Well, the person. Um, just kidding. The <laughs> the novelization, the full novelization, uh, you were very not hot on, right? I honestly don't remember. I think I was more I, hot on it than I was the novelization of Batman Forever, and everyone told me I was wrong, that that novelization is better. Um, I also just like Batman and Robin more than Batman Forever. So I'm sort of mm-hmm. attuned to the story... I like the movie. I like the what it's going for. Family working together, holding hands, etc. Love all that stuff. I mean, th- there's a real chance, and I think you're probably right, that like I simply don't remember what I read. I have this like sense memory of it. I'll never recapture that. It's based mm-hmm. half in a picture of Chris O'Donnell and half in my own fevered childhood imagination. Um I have I have no qualms with this little book. It's like a a nice light read. I'm sorry that I wasn't able to muster the energy <laughs> to get through it. It's not its fault. That's a me. Problem. No, nobody's I'm coming at it. you about that. Particular I'm coming thing. at me. I'm coming at me. <laughs> I let me down, and you guys, you, Hannah. Just to give the the listeners a preview of what's to come, you have in recent days read the entirety of E.T. the Book of the Green Planet and Face Off. So. She's not slacking. <laughs> Respect on the uh, on the plant, the Green Planet book because <laughs> I had so much problems getting through that book. It was <laughs> yeah, so, so hard. Oh. Well, this is the beauty of crumbs. We can take a little bit of a uh, of a side tangent. This episode hasn't come out yet. It'll be out in like two weeks. But listeners, that's a great episode of our podcast. Et two is a rough book. Yeah, I look forward to listening really to hard. you guys. I look forward to listening to that conversation. <laughs> I do a thing sometimes, Pax, and I, I did it with Willow as well, where I, uh, I'll read the book, and then before we record our episode, because, I mean, you editorialize in your episodes, but they're, they're very much uh, based around plot structure, right, where you're going mm-hmm. through the plot, yeah. and I'll, I'll often listen to your episode, because you're, like, so skilled at pointing out and isolating, like, this is a thing that, like, the author is really taking initiative with, or this is something that's specifically added in the text, and um, I felt so bad for you. You did a great job summing up e- e- Cotswinkle's E.T. And then Green Planet, you did what? You, I mean, you obviously didn't like it, which is fine. But you did like five minutes on it, which it's such a slog to get through. What a waste <laughs> of your time to have read the book. Because there's that's just a, you're just pouring time into into that book. There, you're not getting anything back from it. I got nothing back, and I felt like I was giving <laughs> pieces of my soul as I was reading the book. Yeah, it was such a that book took something from me, <laughs> and it was the joyous experience of getting to finish Batman and Robin. Uh, I mean, no surprise to our listeners, but I do end up being the person who kind of goes to bat for Book of the Green Planet. But even I am like. It's not good. <laughs> I just think it's interesting. I, I all agree with interesting because uh, I mean he flies like a turnip or something. So I mean it's it's I uh, good 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 on you we guys. Had a good I barely, conversation about it. 
but it really exhausted my soul Un- to spend understood. so much time with that. Understood. When I, on the record, think E.T. is an icky little guy and I don't like him. <laughs> and I made Hannah do three E.T. books in three months, but that's okay. <laughs> something that's interesting, going back to this novelization, now that we've done two novelizations on the same movie, something that's really interesting is the way it reveals specifically what was in the screenplay that didn't make it to the screen because things pop up in both novelizations that are not on screen which means that they must have been in the draft and not the invention of the author say more like what oh sure i I, you know what hannah i'm prepared to say more (laughs) good thanks thank you let us know andrew so my two examples are the weird digression in this book, which also happens in much more detail detail in the Michael Jan Friedman, where they're like, ah, Alfred, of course, was her uncle, but not really, because as you see, he fell in love with a woman who then he decided was way too young for him, but then she had a child and she calls him uncle. <laughs> it's like, those being in two books, that's not the author. That's in a, that's in a draft of the screenplay for sure. It's so True. weird and so unnecessary. It's a super overcomplicates everything. And you're right. It's in both. Uh, that kind of surprised me. <laughs> and the way it's worded here, where like, once again, as, as Hannah says, this book is really brisk. It's really fast. It, it doesn't take five paragraphs to explain the situation the way the Friedman does. But in skimming over it, it makes it sound almost a little creepier because <laughs> it's like he fell in love and like was involved with a woman who he then decided because she was 20 years younger, it wasn't OK. It's like you got to talk about that more because it kind of sounds like he it kind of sounds like he hit it and quit it and ran away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then the other thing, also Alfred, is the thing in this book where they're like, ah, yes, of course, I'm trying to reach my brother who famously travels around on elephants in foreign lands. And that's why it's so hard to reach him by mail because his job is on elephants. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to send him a CD. It's like, dude, your brother works on elephants. I don't think he's got <laughs> a CD player out there to read. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't remember if we talked about this on the last episode, but the, the plot in these books, which is not in the movie, we definitely touched on this plot, which is that Alfred has this uh, degenerative disease of some sort, and he's trying to send all of Batman's secrets and information to his brother, who has a job on elephants in, I think, Africa. And uh, it's a huge breach of security. Even if it's well-meaning, oh yeah, that Alfred's like, it has let a me password just... on it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but there's there's misleading passages in both uh, intentionally in both of these books, intentionally misleading, where you can tell that the original script had a scene where you see Alfred downloading a bunch of Batman stuff onto a CD, and it's supposed to be this fake out of, oh no, Alfred's bad. Who's he gonna give that to? And then there's the payoff of, oh, no, he's good. He's trying to look out for Batman's legacy. It's like, no, it's still bad. Talk to Batman about this. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Batman should just stop wondering why all of his blueprints get out to the bad guys. Because <laughs> it's uh, Alfred's the security risk here. <laughs> Absolutely. When you only trust one person, you know who leaked. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there, there are a couple of interesting things uh, that I thought. So, like with Alfred's McGregor syndrome, like, and I love, he's diagnosed with stage one, and the doctors at Gotham, the best doctors are like, 
he's dead. Like, I'm, we're done. <laughs> There's nothing we can do. Just make him comfortable. I'm <laughs> like, yikes, man. This is the only disease where it's a countdown. One is the end. One is done. One and done, man. <laughs> and freeze, is, freeze has done it all the way up to stage two and is just holding on to it just in case. I don't know. I don't know what he's holding on to it for. Uh, evil purposes. He's evil now. I don't know. Yeah, that's true. He can't turn it in because he's bad. You're right. <laughs> yeah, he can't be like, I'm... I'm trading my life-saving miracle cure for diamonds, please. <laughs> yeah. Which you might think he might try and do, but no. He may. The yeah. diamonds power the suit. The suit makes icy chaos. Mm -hmm. What does he do that furthers his research? It's completely unrelated, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think he's using his ice powers to commit... I'm sure he's committing money crimes, too, that help fund his research. But his big plan is to hold the city hostage for research money. Yeah, that's super murky. Like, you're right. You're right. He must do two, two fronts. Like Hannah said, he must do the diamond stuff to power his suit because his suit eats diamonds, I guess. Uh, they're, they're, not, they're not renewable. And he must do money once to fund his research to, to do his... To, the thing for his wife so he's got to be doing both but they don't focus on the wife stuff they focus on the diamond stuff i guess this is a, a trope i've discovered i love which is we have uh, an upcoming episode on cowboys and aliens which i adore as a novelization <laughs> and this is a plot point in the movie as well but this thing where evil people sci-fi villains are like you know what i need gold bars <laughs> i kind of love it <laughs> yeah this has always been my argument with superhero movies is like the comics I read growing up. It was just like, I'm stealing diamonds and antiquities for money. It was not, not there was like not a lot of I'm taking over the world stuff and whatever I was reading. And I always just want a bad guy villain who's just like, I'm just here to make money. I just I just didn't I don't like having a job. So I'm a criminal mastermind. You know, I'm stealing diamonds because I love diamonds. <laughs> I'm using my unbelievable weird superpowers to rob a museum because I think it sounds fun. <laughs> and I, and I, I kind of appreciate that Mr. Freeze is like, yeah, 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 the diamonds are just to keep me alive. Um, the shenanigans are for me, though. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I kept, I kept expecting, because I didn't rewatch the movie when I read this book. I, I kept expecting there to be an explanation of how the diamonds were feeding whatever he was using to try to cure the disease. I thought it was going to be a way more direct pipeline. But I guess if I'm going to defend the monster that is Mr. Freeze, he's using the diamonds to keep himself alive to save his wife? Yeah. Because wow. otherwise he wouldn't be cold enough to live. Right. That's he has part. to be subsonic, sub-freeze yeah. it, whatever, you know. He has to he has live. To, he has to live. I have a terrible condition. I have to be traveling at subsonic <laughs> speeds to live. Like, Andrew, I don't know if that's going to come up too Andrew? often. <laughs> you just created a new supervillain. <laughs> Yeah, I, um, I would I, Yeah, I would love supervillains to just be in love with crime and to just, 
I like rare gems. I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't, I don't need them to have a motivation. Like I've got to save my sick wife or I've got a daughter I'm collecting money for. I don't need that in a super villain. I just want them to enjoy causing chaos and being a villain. I would love that. I love that. This is what is so good about Jake Gyllenhaal and Ambulance. (laughs) (laughs) Let's let's do it. Let's do it. (laughs) You know, like, so Yaya in that movie, Abdul Mateen II, has like, oh, I got to find money for my wife's surgery. He's a good guy. And Jake's like, I love doing crimes. I love making money. I love planning crimes. I love executing crimes. Let's do some crimes. Yes. (laughs) Like his only motivation is wouldn't it be fun to rob a bank? I'm like, I love that. Very simple. (laughs) Wouldn't it be fun to, now that we are in the ambulance, wouldn't it be fun to do shenanigans in the ambulance? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Hannah, I love Jake in ambulance because he is the villain essentially. Mm -hmm. But I do think that the two decades of anti hero TV we've had, which were well calculated. Like, all the famous anti-heroes, it's like, this guy keeps making the wrong choices, and it's chipping away at his soul. And then it bred this other type of storytelling that pisses me off, where uh, the, the two examples I'll bring up are, like, The Town and Barry, which I'm not up on Barry. I haven't caught up on the newest season. Showrunners, I'm not going to watch your show if you take four-year breaks. I don't remember anything that happened. But, like, in both of those properties... It's like, you know, hot white man is like, I have trouble making money. I must do heinous crimes that end in murder. And and instead of being like, look at what a piece of shit this guy is, both of them are like, it's kind of tough for him, don't you think? <laughs> it yeah, that's me bad so guy much. with a heart of gold. Is like guy who's like, boy, I wish I could be doing good, but unfortunately, I'm only good at doing bad. Mm. which I also don't love as a storytelling. <laughs> I really prefer a bad guy who loves being bad. Mm. Yeah. In the same way that like vampire stories have become like, ooh, it's so sad to be a vampire. It's so hard. I'm like, no, it rocks. <laughs> it's awesome <laughs> and you should love neck. it. <laughs> Get that neck. Yeah. Um, yeah. The interview with the vampire problem where like Louis is boring as fuck <laughs> and Lestat fucking rocks. <laughs> Because he loves being a vampire. It's fun. Yep. There's nothing better than enjoying whatever it is you've got going on. Just enjoy it. Don't be so emo about it. That's what's so beautiful about Poison Ivy, bringing it back. Yeah, okay. I was going to say the exact same thing. She loves being Poison Ivy. (laughs) Well, Hannah, Poison Ivy is a great example of like uh, the, the sweet spot because she's not an agent of chaos that's completely devoid of motivation. She's of a supervillain who is essentially just miscalibrated. Like something's gone wonky in her head where she's like, I love the earth to the detriment of all else. I will like, I I will like murder for the earth. I will, you know, that, that line where uh, she hands Bruce Wayne, the, the plans to make all of his production, like clean, whatever, like basically stop his pollution. And he's like, this would kill a ton of people. Like, You'd be stripping out, like, heating for the poor, like, blah, and she's like, it so. would be worth it. <laughs> it would be worth it. <laughs> Hashtag worth it. <laughs> Which I think is a, is a, is a grant uh, embellishment, because if I remember the scene in the movie well, it's more of a she just gets brushed aside, and she's like, I wish this rich man would pay attention to me. 
I thought she said something to that effect of like, he was like, well, you're, this will happen and this will happen, giving her consequences. And I thought she said, maybe not like it would be worth it, but something along those lines is just like, uh, I don't know, you, you have to break to make to make an omelet, something along yeah. those lines. I thought she kind of implied that. I love that as a, as a motivation. She has a thing, mm-hmm. but she's like completely lost the ability to reason. Yeah. Yeah, she's overscaled on her on her whole thing. She is more plant than woman. She mm-hmm. has changed allegiances back to plants. Awesomely so. Awesomely so. Yeah. Was Woodrow such a fucking creep? Yes. In the other novelization and the film, because I was I, I was smacked by that this oh, time yeah. around. Even more so. He's super creepy. Yeah, I think he, wow. like, in the movie, like, licks her face or yeah. her hair. Or he's very handsy. In the, yeah, he's yeah. handsy in the movie. Not nice. Not no. nice. Speaking of the villains, we did this as the intro, but that passage where Robin's like, oh, so the supervillain's a guy who, you know, what what is it exactly? It's, um... A decent he's citizen. A, he's a brilliant citizen accident. disfigured by a horrible accident. Reemerges as a psychotic supervillain bent on theft, revenge, and destruction. And then it goes on to say, Batman knew Robin was referring to Harvey Dent, the dazzling district attorney who'd been scarred in an acid attack which drove him mad and turned him into the criminal Two-Face. Maybe it's something in the water, Batman said, and returned his partner's smile. This is a, a fun, a, like sort of metatextual commentary. And the implication is also... Is Batman a major part of this problem? Like, is he like <laughs> making supervillains? What's going on in Gotham? Yeah, that's a good point, and that I do, I do think that's a funny line. But I like that. I don't think the novelization calls it out, but this one did. Uh, actually, calls out what they're talking about. You know, saying he's talking about Harvey Dent, which I don't think they feed, spoon feed you in the last book. So, I, like, I, I like that. This is that's the kind of level that this book is written on. That it's going to spell everything out for you. Yeah, that's a description that could apply to like five Batman villains, to yes. be fair. <laughs> Which is so I'm the not joke, mad that they're right. like, remember. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's a lot of moments in this where he just suddenly decides he's going to do interiority, which, you know, is what a lot of these novelizations do, where they're like, let me get in the heads of the characters. It just really sticks out here because for the most part, he's only focused on action plot. He's trying to do that comic book thing. One part I really liked, though is he gives a little more coloring to uh, Julie, Bruce's girlfriend. Yes. Where it says, uh, it suited Bruce. Well, okay, so first off, he gets asked the question, are you going to marry her? Because you've been going out with her for a few months. And it's like, okay, reporter, like, back off. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> it's And he says, you know, no. And Julie's like, what? And he's like, I mean, not right now. Uh, and then it says, it suited Bruce to have a girlfriend like Julie. She asked no questions about his nocturnal excursions and was always ready to drop everything to attend a party or social event with him. She was good camouflage for his role as Batman. It was easy to forget that although he was playing a role, Julie Madison was not. But like the well-bred girl she was, Julie was in control of the situation. So the the thing I like about this is like <laughs> he just acknowledges that he's being really shitty to her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That I, that was that was totally one of the things I noticed is they totally call out that Julie is just a cover for him. That's that's all. He's like, she. I like her. She's nice, but she's just a cover. I don't care. That's such explicit, like, beard talk, too. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. 
Um, which, like, you know, we've discussed Batman and Robin is a particularly gay Batman movie. <laughs> but to, to bring that so explicitly into what is basically a children's book, I think it's very cool to, like, lay that groundwork of, like, yeah, there's a lot happening with him under the surface, and he feels bad about it, but he knows he can't be himself in public. <laughs> Gotham, come on, man. Yeah. Gatham. Mm. Yep. It's also not only about him mistreating this one woman. It's about how she's like weirdly exactly molded to his needs. <laughs> like the I, I was telling Hannah, I just rewatched uh, Review, the Andy Daly TV series. And there's that episode where he's trying to shoot an apple off of his son's head. And so he tries to adopt a son with a flat head and a thick skull. And I was reading this and I was like... This is like what's going on with his girlfriend. He found someone who's like so weird as to match his very specific needs for vigilantism. Yeah. <laughs> she needs to ask no questions, essentially. Yep. Yeah. She just must love going to parties. Like going to social events must be just her bread and butter and she's happy to do it no matter the emotional cost. Yep. Woof. Yep. Damn, girl. And she, because she didn't say anything until the very public display of. Uh, him asking out uh, Ivy right in front of her, and that, and only then she makes a big deal because I think all the reporters are there. Sounds like she's got something on the side, and he's yeah. just like a nice piece of arm candy for her. Yeah. Well, the the other reading of it, I mean, I think that's possible, but the other reading is that because he needs this specific type of woman in order to operate as. Uh, superhero, he is attracting and courting only people who are, like, very vapid, very, you know, like, she's basically like, I'm okay with not having the deepest relationship with you as long as I'm nominally your partner. And it, just to give this book a lot of credit, maybe I'm, maybe I'm doing too much work for it, but it, it believably shows how his actions and his lifestyle would feed into his loneliness because he would only be surrounding himself with people who could allow him to be so clandestine, secretive. And I mean, every, I mean, the, the first two girlfriends, three, three, I guess, I mean, not counting Catwoman, but Nicole Kidman and I don't remember. Right. Yes. Are both presented as like extremely smart, extremely, cogent thoughtful like detective women basically they're figuring things out and they immediately clock him as batman so the only way he could successfully do this is with someone who was totally disinterested in looking into his life in the slightest had none of the like putting the puzzle pieces together like brain interest mm -hmm. yep. um and i think that julie in the movie is basically presented as just like a woman who exists <laughs> she has like no additional characteristics i don't even know like does she have a job what mm -hmm. does she do i think that does it mention she i think she's a model i think it <laughs> she's a model and i don't remember which book it mentions that in but and i don't know if that's just lazy writing because it's played by ill mcpherson so uh which is, that's probably exactly what it is. So. She feels like a character who doesn't need to be here. And when I got to the scene, and I made it this far in this book, where she is introduced, I was surprised. I was like, they'll just excise her. There's no point in her being present. Bruce Wayne can attend functions alone. Yeah, right? <laughs> I appreciate your honesty, Hannah, but there have been books for this podcast I haven't finished, and I just got away with it. 
Well, no, I'm not a liar. No one ever okay? learned. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a secret superhero running around in the middle of the night telling lies, okay? Hannah, what if it came out that I didn't, like, read most of Revenge of the Sith and I was bullshitting <laughs> through that? Being like, it's so good. Are you I trying to tell me it. something? <laughs> <laughs> I love I loved Darth Grievous. Um <laughs> While we're talking about Batman's emotional state, a total uh, change of subject. Pax, how do you feel, have you experienced, and how do you feel about the, the newest iteration of Batman on the screen? Oh, the the Batman? The Batman. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> it took me four days to watch it. and Oh, no. <laughs> uh it was fine. I guess it was fine. I, I liked Pattinson enough. Um, I felt it ran a little long. I didn't love the Riddler, um, but I liked uh, the Penguin, and I really liked Gordon. I like Jeffrey Wright as Gordon. Um, yes. So yes. I liked. I liked the majority of it. There were some things I didn't like, and I thought it was way too long. <laughs> It is too long. There's some super villains where, like, the penguin's having a good time being a villain, yeah. and the Riddler's having a bad time being a villain. <laughs> and that you can feel it. You can yep. tell. You can totally tell. <laughs> the The reason that I bring that movie up at this moment is because when talking about this Batman dating a woman and having like a superficial relationship with her, that we we've talked about uh, the Batman on this podcast, and and one of the things I. I really like about that movie is how they like un James Bond him. They like sort of like make him less of a playboy and and all this stuff. And it's funny to think that like the current iteration of Batman, it feels like first of all could not have a romantic relationship just in general because he's so messed up. But also, if he were to, it would have to be like the most sincere, authentic connection possible because he doesn't seem to be like capable of like posturing as like a rich whatever exactly yeah you bring up a good point that i really did like about the performance was that that bruce wayne in the batman uh well he's batman like he has no interest in bruce wayne he's not whatsoever. bruce wayne yeah yes. he, he hasn't cultivated that i mean he does has zero interest in being bruce wayne and he's always batman all the time i, I did like that because he's still figuring all that out yeah, when Alfred comes into the Batcave at the beginning, it's not like he's talking to Bruce Wayne. It really feels like, like, oh, you just caught Batman with his clothes off. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, I've got another passage here that feels like a, a, a panel of a comic book, specifically not in how it's, like, action-packed, but you know how sometimes a panel will just be text? <laughs> yeah. It'll just be, like, a monologue. Uh, the one where... Uh, Pamela is thinking about Batman and Robin. She's like, they, they sort of like enter her mind. Uh, Pamela watched Bruce's retreating back for a moment, then frowned at her invitation. Batman and Robin, she hissed, militant arm of the warm-blooded oppressors, animal protectors of the status quo. First, I'll rid myself of the winged and feathered pests, and then Gotham will be mine for the greening. It's like a, a nice little villain monologue that I also like how they throw in Nothing she hates more than an animal, the opposite of a plant. The opposite of plants. I thought that too. <laughs> <laughs> and they threw in the greening, which is a famous story in Batman by uh, Alan Moore, the greening of Gotham, which I thought that was kind of interesting. That's, oh, I don't know. That's that. comic so what is book that? writer knowledge. Huh? Yeah, He's bringing that in. Right there, yeah. Mm. So, so what, what is that concern? 
in uh, the Greening of Gotham, uh, Swamp Thing comes to Gotham, and I forget the reason why, but he holds Gotham hostage and starts growing a forest all through Gotham and shuts everything down because he wants Batman to do something. And I can't remember exactly what it was, but it's a pretty great issue um, and pretty famous in the uh, towards the end of Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing. Is this the villain that you were saying is the character from this movie? Who's who's no. Poison Ivy's boss? That's a different guy. Cool. Also, Bane's not her boss. He's her sidekick. <laughs> oh, no, I know that. I know that. I I was just I I was looking for a passage while also listening. So <laughs> well, I won't let that stand. She's her own boss. She is. No, I would She's never a suggest professional that Bane, boss woman. Bane like a brainless, uh, a brainless tortured victim is her boss. Yep. That this <laughs> Good. this book does maybe even more so than the last book go. Bane's got it bad. He's doing <laughs> real bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, a lot of passages that are like the venom pumped in through the vents that they had dug into his skull to receive the venom. He didn't like it. <laughs> There's a lot of those. <laughs> Poor Bane, a perfectly nice, gigantic brute who cannot speak. (laughs) And it did seem like this novel, the Alan Grant one, made it seem like Bane was more under the thrall of Poison Ivy than in the other. Like, even in the movie, it felt like she was barely in control of him. But here Mm -hmm. in this, this book, this Alan Grant one, it really felt like they were saying that he was just enthralled by Ivy and it wasn't her giving him the the venom. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that under all of that bulk and grunting, he's like, ah, a woman I can love and respect. Mm-hmm. I want to support her dreams. Yeah. I support her as my boss. <laughs> it is weird that she doesn't just assume that she needs to use her like romance dust on him. That never even really crosses her mind. Yeah, that's true. And she saves so- his life when everything's going wrong. Maybe that's, that's enough. True. She saves him from Woodrow worst guy on the planet yeah Uh, so like this book puts forth so this is something i always wondered about and i can't remember if we talked about it um the last time but so her pheromone dust like in the movie my assumption was that was just part of her power set like when she transformed that's what she does she creates these pheromones whenever she wants the book posits like in one passage, I didn't pull it out, but it says that it was created by her. Like she created this pheromone dust. She's carrying it around like like actual sand and blowing it in people's faces, which I thought sounded weird. <laughs> it's like the difference, speaking of Spider-Man, between the, the machine web shooters and the biological. And the organic web shooters. <laughs> yes, it is. So yeah, I and that her blowing dust that she's created really brings up the question did did was she making the dust beforehand before her transformation into poison ivy yeah that's a good point a chemist (laughs) never forget would she be making like such a such a predatory thing when she's in sort of her her more no uh i mean my my assumption is that she emerges from the ground as poison ivy and her brain is fucking crazy and she it's like opened up and she's like oh i can do all sorts of things with this i can make pheromones and i can i'm made of poison i can do all sorts of stuff like she just has this like open-minded ability to take what she's got and spin it into something else that's what i have always assumed i mean that's a that's a great read and it also begs the question so does that mean her poison kiss is also manufactured 
That's a good question. I guess I always thought that was in her saliva. Yeah, see, and that's what I'm saying about the pheromone. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if a lady blew what is essentially dandruff in my face, I don't think it'd be as sexy as like a sparkly glitter chemical. But you know, if that's what it takes. Yeah, I mean, is it? Has it ever been done fictionally that someone has the power to like blow kisses that are fatal and you have to like dodge them? <laughs> oh, huh. I like that image of like yeah. a little kiss floating through the air. And you're I like to the idea it. that it travels slowly <laughs> yeah. and you have to be like, did it already go by? Like, yeah. <laughs> I imagine it's like on Roger Rabbit. Doesn't Jessica Rabbit blow him a kiss and it goes flying like a butterfly towards him? Only he, yeah. he gets it, but I can imagine you trying to dodge it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Roger, famously a huge wife guy, um, <laughs> loves loves a blown kiss. Does. Yeah, one of Hollywood's top five wife guys, I'd say. <laughs> <Totally>. Definitely. 100%. <laughs> Definitely. We're going to like lose a bunch of listeners because we called Roger Rabbit a simp. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if they don't agree with that, then I don't want them here. Honestly, they, they don't understand. Speaking of being... Uh, devoted to another. This passage about uh, Mr. Freeze's thugs is pretty good, where uh, Batman is thinking, it always amazed Batman how easily crooks like Freeze could find thugs willing to take their dirty money, but he had no sympathy for them, as his feet and hands lashed out to land brutal, stunning blows. These men had chosen to do evil. They had no option but to accept the painful consequences. Beside him, Robin fought like a demon, making up in speed what he lacked in body weight. Okay, so I'm actually past what I was talking about, but still, good sentence. But I, I like that they're like, yeah, it's uh, weird that he is able to command such loyalty, but the moment that they pledge themselves to freeze, I'm, I'm over it. I'm like, you know, they're dead to me. Yeah. Did, uh, did this book make Barbara better for either of you guys? Like, I love Barbara. I've always loved Barbara. <laughs> like my my problem is, it feels like they were trying to make her dick from the last movie in this movie. So like, and she has this whole I have a problem with the idle rich, which is hilarious considering that Alfred is paying for her way to Oxbridge, the yeah. private <laughs> yeah. English academy. Um, so like, it, it felt like they were trying to go a few steps too far. What I do love about it, though, and this this hits it more than the movie does, I love her relationship with Dick because it really is trying to like, so Dick is now like ensconced in Bruce's wealth and he's kind of gotten comfortable there, you know, and he's no longer just kind of the, the punk kid. So now she comes in and now, now he's kind of Bruce and she's kind of Dick from the last movie. And I love that dynamic. And I love that they just have, they have that. And they show that in the book a couple of times that they have this kind of antagonistic, but fun relationship that he had before. And it's, it's, she's in there to kind of shake his feathers a little bit. And I really kind of like, it does feel weird to mix up the dynamic between Batman and Robin when it's so new. It was like only cemented at the end of the last <laughs> film. And, and you were talking on our last Batman and Robin novelization episode about how uh, it's strange that this movie is basically doing a can they get along plot after the last movie also did a can they get along plot. Yeah. And something that struck me this time reading this book is it's weird how they're set up as like a 
surrogate father-son pairing in the last movie. Can this work as a family dynamic? Can I raise this this orphaned boy? And then in this one, they have a dynamic of, like, older brother, younger brother, that's my girl type thing going on. Yeah, that's true. It, it kind of does. It tries to change it up. I mean... Yeah, it over like like the a couple other things we talked about. It try it overcomplicates the relationship, and it's my problem with the movie in that the book the book in the very beginning talks about when they're fighting uh, freeze for the first time. They talk about how they're in sync and how they don't even have to think about it, and they know what each other's thinking. And I agree, that's what they should be in the beginning of this movie. But then it's not two pages later, and Bruce completely uh, like overthinks Robin not being able to make the jump, which seems absurd if they are, if they know what they're, they, they should be the dynamic duo and they're not. And they try to throw in Bruce's fear and control of death, which was overcome last time. Um, and the, all they needed was the drama with poison Ivy coming between each other. That that's really the only thing they needed. They didn't need the death thing and it overcomplicates it. Yeah. I've never quite been able to put my finger on in Batman and Robin, like, what they resolve in the end together like great you trust me to fight bad guys on my own doesn't really feel like the culmination of their plot it feels like a little and then like they bring Batgirl into it and that's its own different like let's expand the family and trust each other that feels kind of like I don't know uh weak and off kilter and uh I like it I mean again I really like Batman and Robin I'm always sort of like caught up in the whimsy of it and I like Batgirl, and I love that she shows up and she's like, respect me, or else. <laughs> it's me, Barbara. Yeah, it's she's me. so cute. <laughs> she is. Like, I think, um, like, for me, the thing with Barbara is that she's like, I'm tough, and I need to be respected. But also, I'm cute as hell, and Alicia Silverstone <laughs> is so good at that. And I like, I like that she brings that energy to it. That's sort of like her bubbly, blonde, clueless thing into Batgirl, I think is fun. I yep. like it. I agree. Yeah, but what she can't do, one thing Alicia Silverstone can't do, I think probably in any role, is believably hate the idle rich. <laughs> Agree. Agree. Yeah, that's but not the That is the face of the idle rich. Like, <laughs> that's, that's like... That's true. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not any better. Like, I, I grew up as the faculty kid at a private high school. Like, I, I'm from Gilmore Girls, but like, <laughs> you know, it, I recognize, I recognize her as one of my own. <laughs> <laughs> no, she comes around to it. She decides, I guess it would be okay yeah. to be idle. Great arch. Great arch. If we're fighting crime on the side, that makes it valuable. It does. You can't hold down a nine to five job and fight crime at night. You no. would be too tired. Totally. So, I mean, and she's a computer genius, right? So she'd be like IT in a cubicle. She doesn't Exhausting. want that. She doesn't want that. No. I don't want that. And I do. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> There's it is fun, a, uh, like Barbara's a tech oh, go, genius. Go she could get a job and it would be good. Dick Grayson has no marketable skills and could never get a job. He's very lucky. <laughs> he is. He's a circus performer. What's he going to do? <laughs> I've become a physical trainer, I guess. Oh, Personal yeah. Trainer. Actually, that, that was, what he would that's do. exactly what Dick would do. Yes. <laughs> and I would, I would hire him. He's very teach, hot. Teach me Kung Fu laundry. <laughs> <laughs> circus performer has to be one of those skill sets where yeah there's so many fewer jobs than if you were like a plumber but also so many fewer people who can do them 
True. I mean, if He's you were Dick Grayson, would you want to go back to the circus? I mean, <laughs> yeah, maybe no. not. <laughs> not. Not that particular circus. Do you think no. Bruce Wayne has ever gone back to the movies? <laughs> he could. He, Dick Grayson. That's a good point. Can can <laughs> can market himself as the the guy, you know, who who does all the flips in Ocean's Eleven. He can be like a crime a crime circus guy. Oh, oh my that's, gosh, that's right. He can be part of a heist team. Totally Real sliding doors for Dick Grayson. <laughs> totally, and that's by the way, that's the that's the version of sliding doors I need. Not one where Gwyneth Paltrow's life is slightly different and she changes her hairstyle. I need one where she's like, I could have gotten on the train, I could have not gotten on the train, and it's like, okay, well, in one of these you're a school teacher, and in the other one you're you're doing flips in the Bellagio vault. <laughs> That's the sliding doors I want to see. Yeah. If you could pull that movie off where one of the versions is the lowest stake thing in the world and the other version is the highest stakes, that would be a miracle of filmmaking. I'd I mean, be really it is, impressed. Hannah, it's not not everything everywhere all at once. <laughs> mm, yes, correct. Fair point. Nothing Fair nowhere, point. never. Nothing <laughs> nowhere, none at all. <laughs> That's a good point. All you the know, reviews it's... are like, somehow a movie with this title was worse. <laughs> <laughs> As another side note about everything, everywhere, all at once. I think the low stakes version or the low stakes story uh, works better and I like it more than the high stakes one. Oh, like, well, that's that should the most be harder. Out too. Well, yeah, but I feel like that should be harder to make as compelling as the, like, big high-stakes action side. And I was like, no, 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 stop doing the action. Go back to talking to each other. Yeah. <laughs> My takeaway from that is Raccoonatouille. That was my <laughs> That's takeaway. a movie I'd the watch. The greatest ever. Which, which podcast was I listening to? I don't want to credit the wrong person. Uh, some some podcast I listened to made a very convincing argument that that everything everywhere all at once is like, there's a direct line from Family Guy to it. Mm. In, in the sense that like Raccoonatouille is like a joke that gets thrown in at one point and then just comes back so many times that at a certain point you're like, we've hit Raccoonatouille too much. And then when they're like breaking him out of jail, you're like, I love it again. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's one of those, it's like gets to the point of not being funny and then it goes right back to being funny again. Just well, keep doing it until it's funny. Especially with that joke. Yeah. It's so proud of itself it is. for doing a raccoon as Ratatouille in live action joke that at a certain point, I as an audience member was like, we get it. You're very clever. You're so fucking funny. And then eventually I was like, you're very clever. You're so fucking funny. I was like, into it again. Yep. <laughs> when we saw the live action part, I was like, you did it. You nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> there is a um, very concerning description of Bane's servitude in this book. Uh, on the bottom of 69, uh, I Ivy says to him, For the strong, silent type, you are most persuasive, she told Bane as she came to rest almost like a robot. The criminal who had once been Antonio Diego was now addicted to the substance that warped his body so. As long as Ivy controlled his supply of venom, he would have died for her. Doesn't seem like they have a fun little friendship. That's devastating True. to read. Yeah, that's sad. That hurts me. And they give him a name too to make it even more human. Because I don't think the other ones gave you his name. So this is really humanizing Bane. Oh Bane! <laughs> Poor Bane! My heart breaks. Poor Bane. 
I'm trying to uh, remember if there's anything towards the end of this book that I wanted to hit as I was. I did have a fever today as I was reading it, but let's see. <laughs> that probably only helped. You know, speaking <laughs> of funny and clever, you know who's funny and clever? That good old Mr. Freeze. <laughs> this book, as far as I can tell, it doesn't cut out a single zinger. <laughs> Every zinger <laughs> is present. Intact. Maybe with additionals. I don't know. I love it. The thing I love about Freeze is that, I don't know if you noticed, but he does all these ice puns. <laughs> oh, is that what they are? Gotcha. But then every like 23rd joke <laughs> will just be a pun of a some A regular sort. pun. It he'll, is. Every once in a while, he'll be like, he'll be like, uh, sorry, courts closed on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> like, surf's up, buddy. You know, just something yeah. completely normal. <laughs> I mean... Coming down to my favorite joke in the movie, take two and call me in the morning, mm. is not an ice joke. It's just an, I'm a doctor. Don't forget. <laughs> right. It is reminding us. I don't. <laughs> Please don't uh, remember that the only thing you see me do medically in this movie is fail to heal my wife endlessly. He's kept her alive longer than anybody thought he could. True. Fair. Not to stick up for a mass criminal, but he's doing his darndest with her. I mean, one of the things about this this book sort of like sprinting through the plot is that when Ivy learns that Mr. Freeze has a wife, it's like Mr. Freeze rushes off to do something, probably fight Batman. And he goes, OK, I'll do this. And in return, go get my wife for me. And she's like, you have a wife? Where is she? And he's like rushed off. And then the next scene is her going to his wife. And she just walks in and she's like, this won't do, and pulls the plug. It's so fast. Yeah. It's always a little surprising to me that Poison Ivy is like mad about the wife. Because like, what are you going to do? Fuck him? You can't. Yeah. The wife's not hurting you. Yeah. And it's kind of funny that that's where it's dropped on her. It's like, what? You have a wife? And he's like, go get her. And he had, she had no idea he had a wife. That hey, is, she's been out of the country for years. So she missed yeah. all the news stories about that's, Victor Freeze fell into a puddle with his wife or whatever happens to that. That is true. I'm sorry. I know it's not that. <laughs> he does fall into a puddle. If Arliss Loveless can have sex... <laughs> Mr. Freeze can have sex. He's ice cold. It would, like, be a bad situation. I don't want to get graphic. Let's get into the logistics <laughs> of that, Hannah. <laughs> right. He, he, if it was working, he'd be like, most of me is fine, but one very specific part of me is dying. <laughs> like, yeah, if it worked and got hot, that would be bad for him. If it worked yes. and stayed cold, it would be bad for her. Right. Like, there's just not a good version where they enjoy having intercourse together. It's true. Unless she comes true. out of her suspended animation the same as him and needs... Has that been done? That feels like a kind of obvious Dr. Free, Mr. Freeze story, where, like, the wife is like, I'm cool, I'm a supervillain too now, and then they... That's true. I like don't it or don't like it, I don't know. <laughs> Why has that not happened? That should have happened at some point. Or his wife comes out of the freeze and she's like, I'm I'm not messed up and I need a human man to date, not a popsicle. <laughs> There's a lot of different versions that <laughs> would be fun and true. interesting. I haven't read enough Batman comics, but it feels like that would be an obvious thing to try out. Yeah. So she comes out and she's like, Mrs. Byrne, and she has to live Ooh. at 120 degrees. 
<laughs> How will they make it work? <laughs> they make it work. <laughs> I would watch a domestic drama of like, you're getting too close. It's too hot. I love you. I wish I could touch you. Like the pushing daisies tension. Yeah. But, like hot lady, cold man would would watch, would read, would enjoy. Yeah. Like, I, <laughs> I would consume that. <laughs> Together we can have lukewarm sex, <laughs> but but not it for must, too long, or one of us will die. It, it must be said, the inserts rule. I want to talk to the person who hated Chris O'Donnell and chosen the photographs for this book, because on the cover he like his mouth is half open, he looks ridiculous, right? <laughs> the picture in the inserts. Also, mouth open, looking kind of dopey. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. how come some of these are, like, publicity stills? Some of them are shots from the movie. Chris O'Donnell looks stupid. It's <laughs> not fair. He's so cute. Yeah, they don't take advantage of that. You're right. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Which was, as we've all discussed, very important to me. It was. <laughs> the whole point I'm really... of doing this book tonight is it was important to Hannah. Yeah, that yeah, I got it's... to look at pictures of cute Chris O'Donnell. That exactly. was the whole thing. Exactly. And you got robbed. I did. Thank you. Thank We're you. We're doing the second of our nine episodes <laughs> where we find this Batman and Robin book. <laughs> Every iteration of this book we find, we're doing it. And then once once Hannah finds it, we're going to release packs and we're gonna go okay now you're allowed to come back and do a different book with us. <laughs> and I'm like, finally. It's called <laughs> Batman Begins. No. <laughs> um, yeah, have you touched any of those Nolan's novelizations? I read, I did read Batman Begins, but I did not read the other two. What, how do they, uh, how do they fare? Batman Begins wasn't bad, actually. Um, the, my response to those movies are mixed at best, but Batman Begins, the novelization, um, and I think it was Denny O'Neill that wrote it, uh, was actually pretty good. I actually enjoyed it. Um, it had it added some stuff to the beginning where he's just becoming Batman. I really liked it. I would really love to hear more about the the Razal Ghoul stuff at the beginning when they're buddies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when they're besties and they're they're at uh, the League of Shadows. Yep, there, there's having, a lot of stuff there. Having done like five years of a podcast about novelizations, have you found? this thing that i'm personally observing which is that the the lib the um not liberties that's the those are the things we're losing right now in america um <laughs> the um liberties that is the word i was looking for <laughs> what a twist <laughs> have, you, have you found that the libations that the books take like fall off as they go through like as you get further into the book because I, I I find that when I bookmark these like really thick ones that I have like a million in the first half, and then it just gets so plotty at the end of these books. Yeah, yeah, you bring up a really good point. Um, I have noticed that several of them, especially the big thick ones, you'll have like the first half is like chock full of stuff. And I'm trying to remember one I just did, I just did in the last six months or so, where the first half of the book it took me forever to read and take notes on everything, and I'm like, I'm never going to finish this book in time to do the show in this month. But then, as soon as I hit the midpoint, it was like pretty much the script for the rest of it. So uh, <laughs> I, I have been noticing that a lot, where it's like I think this is going to be so much stuff, but then you're right, halfway through, it's like okay, we're just going to follow the rest of it out. I don't know if the the, art, the author gets tired and he's like, all right, I'm done adding stuff, so I'm just going to move along. <laughs> Just basically an ad for uh, I read movies, but was it 
Oh, this only you you moved your feed. I forgot. Yeah. I gotta I gotta look it up. Um, but yeah, I, I find that a lot, which is that towards the end the author seems to get this feeling of like, well, I a lot of stuff happens at the end and now I have to say it all. Yeah. I, I think it was the mummy is what the one I think I'm thinking of. And there was a ton of stuff about Egypt in the beginning and they're adding all this stuff. And then once he gets to the climax at the end, it was pretty much the same as the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, that's a, I'm sure certainly authors get tired and bored, um, <laughs> but that's also an element of storytelling to an extent, right? Like you front yes. load, you set everything up and then you just let it roll out. Mm-hmm. Not to, well, I mean, on. I've read a lot of these too, and I agree that often the last quarter of a book is like cursory, it's doing the job, it's journeyman stuff. I'm not trying to say that that's not what's happening. Um, but I don't know, I find that I'm kind of ready that at that point in the book to just roll straight to the end. And if <laughs> suddenly I'm like, we're 10 minutes to the end of the movie and I have another 100 pages, I would yes. lose my mind. Yeah. You know, like, I don't want that. I would agree with that, that... Many times when I do come up on that, you're right. I'm just like, okay, I'm ready to kind of roll through the climax of this. Um, and so if it's one of those bigger books, I'm like, yeah, please kind of be the same at the end so I don't have to do quite as much work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hannah, I agree with you that like from a from a reader perspective, it's kind of refreshing. But I also think that the nature of storytelling is that like the beginning of a story, assuming it's not a sequel, is this thing where you have all these characters just sort of like crash in and you're like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. He's a lawyer. He's in trouble, whatever. And so there's like so much potential in act one Mm -hmm. as a novelizationist to be like, well, you see during his first marriage, he developed this habit that would inform his law career forever, you know? And, and when you get to the end of this, honestly, very exciting sounding movie that I'm pitching, um, where, you know, he's like, He might be pitching uh, the firm. <laughs> no, I think that my guy is trying to get a, a lawyer that he was sort of training to like not repeat the mistakes of his past because oh, he himself is sort of irredeemable. So mm. anyway, at the end when he's like trying to get on the boat to place the incriminating evidence that he he removed during Act One that he's decided was wrong to do. Um, at that point, you're like talking about how he's getting on the boat and how he's punching the other guy you know like it just becomes less i think cinematic storytelling starts in a very uh heady cerebral place and often ends in like uh and this is how it wrapped up and then if you start speculating at the end you're just doing a sequel right true valid point not to bring it back to the best novelization we've ever read but the strength of Cowboys and Aliens... <laughs> Which isn't out yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, get, get hyped. Is that it's, it does manage to sprinkle those things all the way through the book. Like, yes. it, it rushes towards the end, but simultaneously is giving you new and interesting character details up into the last 20 pages. Yes, 100%. It's like, I, I think one of the reasons is that there's a million characters. And so you have to pepper in all this character detail throughout or else the whole first hundred pages and is, and this is his deal. This is his deal. <laughs> it's know? just well done and I <laughs> applaud it. Wow. Okay, that's good to know because uh, uh, I, <laughs> I don't love that movie and I was like, I don't know if I want to read the book. But, uh, the book. Oh, okay, well, that's good to know. I may have to check that one out. 
I'll say this about our third season, which for our listeners is like two or three weeks away. Uh, First of all, it basically just starts next week because the next two episodes we have are like full books (laughs) and two hour long episodes. Um, But we choose our books pretty randomly. And when we wrapped up season two, we said, for whatever reason that books in season two kind of turned out to be weaker than the books in season one, with maybe like the exception of Willow. Uh, we're having the opposite experience with season three. We're just bangers. accidentally Lamper hitting some bangers. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm, I'll be looking forward to those. <laughs> what, Paxton, what do you think about these two novelizations taken in consideration with one another? I mean, you, you did you reread it for I Read Movies? Uh, no, uh, when we did it for your show, I read it and took my notes. So then when I did my show, I already had the notes to do it. Um, I enjoyed the libations that Michael Jan Friedman took with Batman and Robin. Uh, (laughs) that movie is kind of crazy anyway. And I feel like, uh, his liberties were fun enough that it kind of fit into the movie tone that it was trying to go for. This one is just like... It's like you said, I think it was a good it was a good explanation. This is like a book report on the movie. Uh, like it's super easy and breezy and uh, it it has a couple of interest, interesting passages here and there. Um, but it, it's I mean it's it's still pretty good and I enjoyed I enjoyed reading it for this for us to, our discussion. It's it's one that you know you don't have the usual predicament where you're like I better have liked this. It took me eight hours. <laughs> right. Yep. It's like, it, it doesn't have to live up to too much to be like, yeah, that was fun. It yeah. made me think of Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin. Yeah. Uh, Pax, in the uh, format of the authorized crumb, we close out by saying whether we would recommend or not recommend a book with the modifiers hard or soft. So a hard recommend, a soft recommend, a hard do not recommend, or a soft do not recommend. Which would you go with? Oh, uh, I guess it all depends on your familiarity with the movie because I think I agree with you. I'm giving you a long answer, and I don't know if that's what you're looking no, for. No, it's good. So, <laughs> uh, There's no no actual structure. I just say stuff like there is. <laughs> uh, it's like I, I agree with you that like it doesn't work on its own. You need the movie, and I agree with that on the Friedman novelization as well. So I would give it a soft recommend, depending on your thoughts on the actual movie. Hannah Blackman, mm-hmm. you are about to hard or soft recommend <laughs> or do not recommend <laughs> this book. And what would you do? And also, please do compare it to the other book. Yeah, I I think at this point, because I'm a, an adult who I, I've always been this way. I really the reason I came to novelizations is because I wanted more meat on the bones. I wanted a bunch of emotions and a bunch of tangents and a bunch of additional information. Um, so I think I like the longer novelization of Batman and Robin better. It's just like a richer text for me. I do, you know, you both of you mentioned that it's just like, it's the movie. I like that this book opens and closes with the exact images that the movie opens and closes with. Mm-hmm. It opens with like, we're putting on armor, we're putting on <laughs> butts, boobs, whatever. And it closes with, we're running towards the camera off to fight crime. I think that's very charming. Uh, that being said, again, I did not finish it, so obviously it didn't grab me so hard that I couldn't put it down. <laughs> um, so I would soft recommend for a young reader. Are you going to finish it after this, Anna? No. <laughs> I wouldn't I'm expect not. you to. We're, we're, <laughs> I'm sorry to so say I'm not. we're too inundated. It's like inundated, inundated, inundated. I say that all the time. I got it. I need to yeah. read a book 
for myself, like for my soul, <laughs> you know, like I need to start something that doesn't have a home. It's not homework. It's right. like joy. You know? Give something to yourself, Anna. Give it. Yeah. So I'm not gonna I'm going to finish reading it. Sorry. <laughs> Pax, I'm going on like a 17 day hiking trip. And because I like rule this podcast with a with an iron fist <laughs> when i'm around i'm like we're doing two novelizations this week you better read them and then of course i'm like um i'm going away for three weeks so there won't be any episodes <laughs> yeah we can't do it without you andrew like if you tried to leave it in our hands without you it would fall apart i think we tried once and it didn't go very well so <laughs> yeah we could try with a crumb sometime yeah sure I mean, that being said, we have a bunch of stuff scheduled in August, and I just booked a trip to L.A. without thinking about it. I was like, I guess I'm missing one. I'd be <laughs> well, I don't think you will that. be, Hannah. Just a little spoiler. Oh, okay. Will be. Okay. Well, we'll talk about that uh, yeah. off the air. Because I won't, I won't allow you to. We'll move everything around. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love this podcast. You I love doing it. it. <laughs> I really, it's um, such a joy in my life. It is, it is uh, for me as well. Uh, but... What about a question? Okay, Andrew, hard, soft, recommend, don't recommend. Uh, Lay it on a, us. This would be a soft recommend for a Batman fan. Probably a hard do not recommend for just a, a person. Somebody who didn't really care <laughs> about Batman. Regular it, just would, it just would fall outside of your purview. Mm-hmm. If, you're not, if you're not into Batman, don't read this book. If you are into Batman, I can't guarantee you'll love it, but you probably will. And as I kind of gave away before, I think it beats the Freedmen. Uh, because it gets what the juice is, as opposed to being like, you know, it would go great with this juice, a three-course meal. (laughs) Uh, Oh, and I I meant to hit this more. We got talking about the content of the photos in the middle of this book. We'll post these to the Instagram. They're just quality photos, like the, 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 the... the paper stock and the oh, ink yeah. and everything. Mm-hmm. And we've, we get such, um, as I'm sure you do, Pax, we get such dreck yeah. um, sometimes in the middle of these books that I was impressed with the color and the, the lighting and everything. Yeah. It's nice when they give you like the nice photo paper and everything. And it's not just yeah. print with black and white photos in the middle. Yeah. Totally. This is my I've favorite got... one. Bane. There it is. <laughs> Hannah's holding out Bane just sort of like standing in front of a, a wall for a, a production still. It it's looks like, a little bit like a costume continuity shot almost. It's like so well lit. I love it. I love. That's like a Men's Health 97 cover right yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, Paxton, I've got wind talkers right here. This I feel like we get this stuff a lot. Oh, yeah. Black Those are white. shiny at least. They're at yeah. least shiny, but... The ones yeah. in That's true. face-off were like newsprint. They were on matte cheap-ass paper. Yeah, my my touchstone for bad ones is always Wild Wild West. Just the bottom of the barrel. Horrible. It was like the black and white photos weren't even really that, like, legible. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Horrible quality on horrible paper. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pax and Holly, you have a podcast that... um, Am I getting this right? So sometimes when films are made... Is it? Are the films based on books? Is that what's going on? Is that what a novelization is? Yes, that's what that is. What that is? <laughs> like okay. When films are based on the books are, I'm getting them all mixed up. Books are based on films. That's what mm. I. That sounds strange. <laughs> it does. It's it's kind of probably odd to you guys because you don't you don't deal with anything like that. No, no. I just think about I just think about movies and I think about books and never the twain never shall meet. <laughs> Never the Twain, show me. So, Paxson, tell us about I Read Movies. And this one, last time we made you wait like four months. This one's coming out on July 7th. So what do you got coming up for I Read Movies? 
so someone's coming all jolly set. Okay, so uh, yeah, uh, I'm currently on the Cult Film Club feed. Uh, I like you guys. I pick novelizations and I just kind of go over the differences. I just did. Oh my lord! So June was probably Bill and Ted Bogus Journey. I think that was the mm-hmm. last one I just did. If that's a good read. It's a junior novelization as well, but it has an alternate ending. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed doing that one. Uh, I've The last couple of months, I've had a lot of problems keeping something in the schedule. I've had at least three or four books this summer, and they've all changed. So uh, right now, I don't even know if this is going to be true. I'm just going to tell you something I'm going to do. <laughs> I have no idea if this is going to be my actual next episode. Um, but my next episode currently is going to be Top Gun by Mike Kogan. How are you watching it? Because we're we're gonna do it in 2023. How are you (laughs) reading it? How are you finding it? Uh, Okay, well, if you go on, I have it, but I found a copy on thearchive.org that you can just download PDF, and you can have it. So amazing! We're gonna do that. I looked at it just yesterday and was like, I don't have 150 bucks for this. Right, right, right. I I actually, I was actually sent a copy of it, but um, there's a digital version on the archive you can get for free just downloaded the pdf that's what i did i'm actually going to read that amazing so because of maverick and everything that's out um i i'm going to do top gun for my july episode and so that'll be somewhere in the somewhere in the middle of the month i try to get them out by the 15th of the month so amazing amazing well thank you oh hannah i I have a question about another podcast you do yes hellbent for letterbox is this is this just any old western you find in your heart uh, yeah, there there are two hosts. There's me and Michael, and uh, we we each pick a western. Um, we we kind of have soft rules about what we pick. Um, yeah, it's mainly up to whatever we want to pick. But uh, the main rule is we don't do modern western. So we don't do something like No Country for Old Men. We don't do Hell mm-hmm. or High Water or something like that. It has to be a historical western, like around the Civil War era, and uh, it, it doesn't have to be place in the past. Yeah, so it has to take place in the past, and typically, but it doesn't have to be like in the Southwest. It can be like a you know somewhere in Georgia or something like that. But it does have to be historical. We don't. We'll talk about like modern ones, maybe in like stuff that we watched before the movie, but the movies we actually cover are all historical westerns. Okay, very cool, very cool. I uh, I have a couple historical westerns that live deeply in my heart, and I'm gonna <laughs> scroll forever and see if you've covered them. Well, Pax, thank you so much for coming on to, uh, what's our show called? Authorized. <laughs> Authorized. Uh, Novelizations podcast again. I swear to God, season four, we've pretty much recorded season three of, of Authorized, but season four of Authorized, we're going to have you on. You're going to do a different movie. <laughs> That's a promise. <laughs> well, I look forward to that. And whatever you need me, just put up the pack signal in the sky. <laughs> I absolutely will. Um, to our, our listeners, first of all, go back and check out the last episode we did with uh, with Pax, which was on the same movie on the other novelization, it came out in January of twenty two. The episode, uh, and we get a we get a lot more into the film in that one. Uh, so if you're a big Batman and Robin the movie fan, check that out. Uh, please do rate our podcast. Please do review it, subscribe to it, uh, and also the deal coming up is that. We've got E.T. coming out next week with Mark Stay. We've got E.T., the Book of the Green Planet, coming out the week after that with Mark Stay. And then we've got Species with David Sims, and that is the beginning of Season 3. 
that's going to roll for like three months. So the gravy train is just leaving the station. <laughs> where does gravy come from? <laughs> Wherever it comes from, that's where it's leaving. It's coming to your Thanksgiving table. Great. Okay. So as usual, because this is a crumb, I am going to give you... Well, there's no more crumbs before the next season comes, but someday there will be. So here's another crumb. Alan turned from the bow of the great ship to see a short, round man with a mustache approaching. He wore a red plain shirt, cream-colored shorts, and a scowl, just like always. The ship rolled sharply on the high sea, and the man kept his balance by shifting his weight a little. Alan had to grab a handrail. Mr. Stevens, Alan said. I've been hoping we'd get a chance to spend some more time together. Me too, Dr. Grant. Why is the novelizationist Alan Grant in this thing we're going to be reading? <laughs> so confusing. Good night. Good night.